Well, happy Father's Day to all you guys and granddads as well and just men in the church. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, yesterday I came back off a holiday um, to the Lake District, so it was a long, tiring drive home. And uh, half an hour of being in the house, my son rang and said, Oh, Dad, you're home. Um, can I just pop round and see you? And I said, be great to see you. So he came round and he said, Dad, it's Father's Day tomorrow. What would you like? Wow, I've never had that. He's nearly 30 years old. And I have never had that question in all of his years, my long years. And he's not quite so long, so I thought, oh make the most of this opportunity, I said, well, how about some leg? That's another story. I won't go into that this morning if you want to ask me about that. He said, yeah, I can do that. So, of course, um, he then went after we had a bit of a catch-up and uh, got up this morning to just drive up this morning, and there on the doorstep was the tiniest leg figurine you could possibly imagine. I think it's a, it's a Harry Potter leg figurine. But, but there he was, thoughtful son of mine. I don't know what you got, but my cake is definitely good. So, <laughs> as it's Father's Day, how good will it be to talk about a group of men and this group of men who had gone fishing? John chapter 21, if you would like to share the reading, the words will appear on the screen behind me. But John chapter 21, and I'll read the first 14 verses. It's lovely that in our songs of worship this morning, we sang about our Saviour alive again. And this is a great resurrection chapter. First one, afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net <clears throat> excuse me, on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals. Sorry, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just bought. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, 
and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love the Gospel of John from start to finish. And in my yearly reading programme, this is as far as I've got so far, and I'm enjoying every moment of it. And I love every single chapter. They are wonderful. It's wonderful reading. When I come to chapter 21, I find that chapter a little bit of a surprise. For this reason, if you were to take the whole of John's Gospel, you can pretty much divide it nearly in half. From chapters 1 right the way through to chapter 12, it is often called the Book of Signs. And John, in this half of the Gospel, has recorded seven wonderful miracles at the hands of the Lord and seven great teachings from the Lord. Remember, the number seven speaks of perfection in the Bible. That's quite interesting. And here John is telling his readers who Jesus is, the Son of God, not just a man, not just a teacher, not just a historical figure in time, but who he really is. And then, nearly the second half of the Gospel, not quite half, but near enough, from chapters 13 right the way through to chapter 20, John has taken up nearly half of his Gospel to write about what's called the Passion of Jesus. And it's Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and, of course, the cross at the end of it. A huge amount of writing about that event and all that transpires along the way. If the first half, John is telling us who Jesus is, get to grips with that fact. Believe who he is. That's the first step of faith and your journey of faith from then onwards. But then, in the second half, he is telling us why Jesus came. It was all about the cross. As we have sung, it is all about forgiveness and knowing this Father heart of God on a personal level. This is an important thing to understand. Christian statisticians over the past two years, have gone out into the general population to ask three questions. They have asked people, do you believe in God? And nearly everyone will come back and say, yeah, I believe in a God. They don't have a problem with believing in God. And then they are asked, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And the response from that was just strong. There is such a spiritual awakening today, people have no problem with believing in the Holy Spirit. But when people were asked, do you believe in Jesus? People have a problem. They believe in a historical Jesus. They can't deny the fact, but they do not understand, cannot take in the need of Jesus in their lives. Isn't that interesting? And this has been proved over the past couple of years. It gives us a wake-up call as churches to present strongly the desperate need people have to know Jesus and to understand not just who he is, but why he came. This is important. This is relevant. 
But back to my initial statement, both of these two halves of John's gospel come to two wonderful conclusions, both in chapter 20. We have Thomas, who, on the second appearance of the risen Christ, looks at him and believes. Now he knows and he claims, you are my Lord, you are my God. I believe that you are alive again. Wonderful conclusion to the gospel. But John's not finished. And right at the end of chapter 20, we have John's own conclusion. And in the end verse of that chapter, he says, everything that I have written, that you might believe that he is the Christ. Full stop. Draw a line. No. John hasn't finished. And so we have chapter 21, this surprise chapter. After these two wonderful conclusions, what is it all about? Is there, is there a reason, some overwhelming reason? Well, yes, and we haven't got time today. I don't intend to look at these details. But you find in this final chapter two wonderful themes. Catching fish and feeding sheep. Fishing and feeding. These are two great agendas for our churches today. That we should be a people of God who are fishing, reaching out to people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Good to know what was done on the seafront yesterday and in other parts of our city during this tourist time. This is a great time to reach out to people. That's the first agenda. But the second theme we find in this final chapter is feeding sheep. That comes from this personal conversation the Lord has with Peter to bring him back on board and to commission him, feed my sheep, look after my lambs. That's about discipleship, the second great agenda of our churches today, telling and teaching, and we need them both. These are important, but you know, as I was thinking about this this past week, I see a third theme. And this theme is all about Jesus. And I see Jesus in this chapter in the light of him coming back for his disciples. And this is so important. This is just what they needed. And he comes back for them again. John has already stated this is the third occasion that the risen Christ has appeared to his disciples. But this is different. Look at how personal the details are about this meeting point with the disciples. Look at what the Lord does. Look at how he interacts with them. Look at how he deals with individuals amongst this small band of just seven of the disciples. There were seven. Remember, they started as 12. Judas hanged himself. And where the other four are, we really don't know. Here are seven. And it's all about a fresh start. It's all about lives reconnecting with God. It's all about people being brought back on board and reinstated. It's all about a fresh start. Are you up for that? Something you want? Is it something you need? Well, it's certainly something I need every day. And there's a word for this. <clears throat> the Bible calls it grace. The grace of God shown through Jesus once again. Now, I, when I was little, I used to go to Sunday school. And yeah, I did. I wasn't always a bad boy. I can remember being banned from Sunshine Corner. 
that's another story, but uh, I do remember that event, actually, so it must have been impressionable upon me. But, you know, I remember a few things that I was taught in Sunday school. One was the word grace. And I remember being told to take the letters and look at what it tells us. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. I love that. I've never forgotten that. And if that's new to you, hang on to it. Or it might have brought back some memories. This is the grace of God through Jesus coming back. And do you know what I find in this? I find a God. I find a saviour of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. He has come back to a group of disciples. He's giving them another chance. He wants them back, especially Peter. Isn't that lovely? Don't you believe in the God of the second chance this morning? We need it. We need it all the time. And as we see the opening of this chapter, it begins with Peter. It's, it's all about Peter, to be quite honest. And when I look at Peter in these early verses, I find him a man who is quite dispirited. He is probably anxious. He is probably <clears throat> suffering sort of guilt feelings in his life. Remember, he had denied knowing Jesus three times. How do you live with that? Well, maybe we've done that ourselves. This is where Peter was. He remembered that. But maybe he's also feeling confused. He saw the empty tomb. He'd seen Jesus on two occasions alive again. But what next? Now what? He's perhaps a little bit confused. But we're not here to judge Peter this morning because we've all been there. I think you know what it is to be anxious and dispirited, not knowing the way forward, a little bit guilty, disillusions, maybe confused. We've all been there. We're not going to judge Peter. We're going to see something of the grace of God in his life, which we can apply to our own lives this morning. And Peter, trying to regain some control in his life, he did what came naturally to him. He went back to the one thing he knew something about. Now, it's important that they were in Galilee. And you'll remember from when Jesus came alive again, the message to the disciples was, go to Galilee, I will meet you. They were in the right place, but I'm not sure if they were doing the right thing. But we find that Peter says, Guys, I'm going fishing. But what I love about this is the details that John includes. And look at the response from the other disciples. They didn't say, okay, have a great time. We'll see you when you get back. Oh, Peter, we're coming too. They all stay together following his leadership, wondering what's going to happen next. Well, maybe we don't know. So, Peter, we're coming with you. Fishing for them on this occasion was at night. It's not a rare occasion. That is done quite commonly in our own fishing areas around the southwest coast. Fishing at night is a common thing. I don't know about the east. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But what we do know is that these guys, only three of them, we believe, were fishermen. The others probably weren't, but they were together. And they spent the whole night fishing. And what did they catch? Nothing. I have to confess that I'm not a fisherman. But I have fished for a whole night with some work colleagues at their invitation. And I warned them 
I said, I've never been fishing. I don't know what to do. Now, I might be talking to fishermen here today, so please excuse me for being a non-fisherman. But I can still remember that night I went fishing. The whole night. And what did we catch? Nothing. I learned two lessons about my fishing experience. A, I'm not a fisherman. B, what an utter waste of time. <laughs> and I gave them the whole night. But I know that there were seasoned fishermen amongst my friends. They didn't catch a fish either. So I felt, hey, not just me. I'm not just a novice uh, trying to work my way through this, this problem. And I just asked one of them a question, and I said, um, where's the fish? And he said, you know, I must tell you something. He said, you might find this hard to believe, but you must never go fishing if you're in a mood. <laughs> oh, that's odd. He said, the fish know. <laughs> oh, come on. Now, if you are a fisherman this morning, please, can you tell me if there's any truth in that? Because I've held on to that truth for 30 years, and I still i am not sure whether they were pulling my leg. But anyway... I thought, that's a great statement. Let's get back to the narrative. Can you imagine the mood that was in this boat? There was a mood. Having caught nothing, what's the way forward? Dispirited, a little bit empty. That's where they were. But things were about to change. And John tells us that what follows is a wonderful thing. It's early sunrise. You're there. The sun has just come up. The heat of the day will be just starting to build and acting against the coolness coming off of the water, there would probably have been an early morning mist. wonder they didn't recognise Jesus on the shore. But neither did they recognise his voice. I find that strange. But it was Jesus. And from the shore, this stranger asked them that awful question. Ask any fish, fish, never caught a fish for the night. Have you caught any fish? The answer shows the mood. No. It's not elaborated. It's one simple answer. No. And then, to their shock, this so-called stranger offers the fish some advice. Well, why don't you put your nets on the right side of the boat? Then you'll find fish. What's even more amazing about this story, these seasoned fishermen, they did it. Well, what did they have to lose? Nothing. And as they lowered their nets onto the right side of the boat, what an incredible haul of fish. Not on the left side, but they were on the right side. How amazing is that? And John gives us the details. How many fish did they catch? 153. It's one of those numbers you probably won't ever forget. It's not just the number. They were large fish. Now, if you read a hundred different commentaries, then you will find a hundred different reasons that commentators will give for the symbolic meaning behind this number of fish. It won't help you at all. And I actually was tempted, I gave away to temptation, and I looked at one commentary, John Stott, one of my heroes. And he gave three suggestions. He said, here, guys, are the top three. And the first one, 
153 represented the number of spoken languages in the world at that time. Wow, I wouldn't know that. Number two, 153 represented the number of own races of people in the world at that time. I would never know. But the third one is interesting. 153, which was presented from a historian of the day, said at that time in the Sea of Galilee, there were 153 different varieties of fish. Now, because I've got the imagination, that gripped me. We don't know. And nothing hangs on this, of course. It's just out of interest. But I love the fact that theologians go bananas over this point. I'm not a theologian. Maybe John, with the disciples, as they got that net full of fish to shore, opened the net and very simply lined up the fish, counted 153, and John remembered and he includes it in his gospel. The important thing is it was a wonderful miracle. And interestingly, this is the last recorded miracle that Jesus did on this earth. And it is the only recorded miracle that Jesus performed after his resurrection. Right at the beginning, we stated that John wrote in the first half of his gospel that the miracles were signs. This was a sign. This was relevant and important for the disciples to know. And from that boat, let's get back to that. It was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John never used a name. Always referred to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the first one who recognised the Saviour. He told Peter, Peter it's the Lord. Look! And Peter, even though, even though he didn't recognise him first, he was the first one over the side of the boat, into the water, swimming ashore to meet his saviour. Isn't that just like Peter? And his character and his nature. It's just like the news of the empty tomb. Peter and John in that race to get to the empty tomb. John got there first, but Peter overtook him and went straight into the empty tomb. He had to see it. He was the first one ashore. And when the other disciples reached shore, certainly it was Jesus. And then they sat and had breakfast with Jesus. We talked about breakfast being made for us this morning. I didn't have that experience. I think I might have had it sometime, but I can't remember. Jesus had made breakfast for his disciples. He was waiting for them. But he always does, doesn't he? Has he ever abandoned you? Has he ever left you alone? Has he met your needs? Has he always been there for you? When we look back with hope inside, yes. He's always there. And I just wonder, as Peter looked at the Saviour, across those burning coals, the heat of the fire, that sort of haze that comes away, as he looked at his Saviour, I wonder, did he remember another fire in a courtyard where he denied knowing Jesus, I wonder. As John looked at the Saviour across that fire, and as he took bread and fish from Jesus, did he see the nail prints in his hands? Did he remember Calvary, where he witnessed his Saviour be nailed 
to a cross. Did the other fishermen amongst them, did they remember another miracle of catching fish at Jesus' command? And then all seven of the disciples, did they, as they saw Jesus, and take food from him, bread and fish, did they remember that other great miracle where he fed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread? I don't know. But what wonderful thoughts. And what's really, really important is that what is for certain is that this was Jesus. Alive from the dead. And what are the implications of that? Jesus is who he always said he was. The Son of God. And on the cross, as he was nailed to die for my sins, in his death, he defeated the power of Satan over my life. He destroyed the hold of sin within my life. He really is the way, the truth, and the life because he is alive again. This really is Jesus. This was no spirit. This was no vision. Visions and spirits cannot make up fires and cook breakfast. This was the real physical Jesus, and he had come for them. Wonder of wonders. Hallelujah. What a saviour. What a wonderful saviour. The chapter continues. We haven't got any time. But we know the conversation the Lord had with Peter. He wanted to bring Peter back on board. He would challenge him about his denial. He had to make it real. But he wanted Peter to be on board. He needed Peter to be a leader amongst the people, the flock of God. And did Peter go back fishing? Yes, he did. But not physically. Spiritually, he fished for the souls of people. And that first day he got up and preached Christ, 3,000 people came to know the real Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Can I leave you with just this thought? A couple of thoughts, really. Just to take away. Jesus knew where his disciples were. He knew they were going to be there. He knew they were going to attend fishing. He knew who was going to be there. And he came back for them. He was waiting for them. And as I thought about that, it reminded me of a little girl way back in the 1800s. But she was so badly physically disabled. She was locked into her bedroom. She couldn't get out of her bedroom. And from her bedroom window... She would look out and see all the children playing. She couldn't join them. She was broken, completely broken as a young teenage girl. And she cried herself to sleep on this particular night. And she had a vision. And her vision was Jesus, with his arms outstretched, open wide to her, saying, whoever comes to me... I will never drive them away. They're welcome. And that morning, she gave her life to Christ. It's a wonderful true story. And out of her experience, she wrote a lovely traditional hymn, long time since I've sung it. The words, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I 
come. Jesus is waiting for you, waiting for you to come back to him this morning. The second thing is trust. What would have happened if the disciples, as fishermen, didn't obey the Lord, didn't put the nets down on the right side? We don't know. We'll never know. But the wonderful thing is they trusted their saviour. They obeyed and they reaped the benefits. They trusted him. I am assured that God has a great, wonderful plan for your lives. So trust him. Believe in him. Look to the way forward that he has prepared for you. And the wonderful thing about this whole story is that Jesus gave to his disciples just what they needed. He cooked them breakfast. How real is that? But it was real. It was important. He met their needs. They were hungry. When their tummies were fed, they could think straight. And he had them where he wanted them to be. The lovely truth is this. He knows just what you need this morning. So trust him. Believe in him. Come to him. Lovely promise of scripture. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Thank you, Steve.